Our second reading is from the book of Revelation, chapter 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The word of the Lord. It is the most wonderful time of year. With the kids jingle belling and everyone telling you, be of good cheer. It's the most wonderful time of the year. It's the happiest season of all. But is it really? My guess is, for some of you, it is. And for many others, it's not. It's actually a really hard time of year because you're supposed to feel happy and joyful and it's supposed to be wonderful, and you don't feel that. Sometimes that happens just over the course of time because many of us, when we become adults, have a view of Christmas that's built on nostalgia. It's fond memories, usually a collection of all of our fond memories of either being children or having children, and then you get to a certain point in life and it's just not there anymore. And ultimately, it's also because what every 16, 15, 16 year old learns is this no Christmas can meet the depths of your expectations for it. Christmas morning comes and goes, and you're like, oh, when I was eight, I got excited. Now that I'm 16, it's just cynical and jaded. It's also hard for us just in seasons of life. You go through different seasons of life where it is more challenging because you realize that you're 16 and you're not eight anymore and the magic and joy is not there. Or you had kids and now they're gone, they're old, they're, you don't have that anymore. And you get to different seasons where the emptiness feels more profound. And I think for many people, the season of Christmas, which is supposed to be so filled with joy, is actually filled with a lot of memory of losses and unmet longings. There's a lot of grief and sadness. The blue Christmas idea is very real. At the Christmas concert that many of us went to on Friday night, Melanie Penn was talking about writing that album, Emmanuel. And in the writing of it, it happened in 2016, a year when she was severely depressed and stayed in Brooklyn by herself instead of going to visit with her family. But in the middle of that, she began writing and what she did summarizing, what she said summarizing how Christmas season can often feel if you're dealing with depression is this. She said, the losses you've endured feel so much more excruciating during the holidays. It's like what you're missing out on, what you don't have, what's gone from you, it's just more present, like a wound that's being poked. And I think that's why Advent is such a gift to us. Because Advent is not just about this hope in presence and Santa and all the ho-ho-hos. It's identifying the injustices, the grief and sadness and evil in this world, 
And ultimately, Advent is looking past Christmas morning. It's looking not just to Jesus' first coming, but to his final coming. And so it's a hope not just in one season, but in the God who is over history and eternity. And that's why we sing every week with Israel, O come, O come, Emmanuel, ransom captive Israel, come set us free. We're in exile here. We long for you to come again. We feel that exile sometimes, that disorientation of the life we live, the body we're in, the relationships we have or don't have. And the angel refrains back, rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel will come to you. Do not give up hope. Because one day, on that day that Christ comes again, there will be justice on this earth. You will experience peace, shalom, wholeness. This morning, we come to the end of a series that we've been in the entire fall. We're calling it Ustedes, Y'all, if you're from the South, Yins, if you're from Pittsburgh, Yous, if you're from the Northeast. It's the you plural, which is filled throughout the Bible, and especially the New Testament, when it's talking about the church. And that's our idea. What is it to become the people of God that God has designed and called us to be? And what we've looked at over the past 12 or so weeks is that we, as the church, a local church and the church global and historic, are the new nation of Israel, the new people of God, the new family of God. We are called to be a city on a hill. We looked in the middle of October and into November about our calling to be a unity in diversity, that we have different gifts and strengths and weaknesses, and we come together as one body in Christ, that we need one another. We are not meant to live our Christian lives by ourselves. And we're called into relationships that the gospel enables of humility and generosity and love, where a church community can be a hospital for those who have been wounded or struggling in life, where a church can be a home, a place of safety for people to grow in their understanding of who God is and his intentions for them. And this morning, we come to the end. And that's why we're looking at Revelation 19, really near the very, very end of the Bible. And what is God's intention and aim for us in the end? Well, it's very clear, although not that clear because it's a bunch of metaphors, that God's intention is to unite us to himself forever. And to put it more simply, God wants to marry us. So, Scripture, the Bible, has a lot of images, metaphors, themes that recur. And this is common in all of literature, any film, it has recurring themes. So, for example, friendship is a recurring theme in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings series. So, the whole story begins with the first book, The Hobbit, about a friendship between this one guy, a hobbit, and this wizard that kicks off the journey. The journey goes on to where all of a sudden it looks like there's a a group of friends that are going to save the world, but then the friendship breaks up. And in the end, it, it ends with sort of a saving thing that happens at the end because of one friend's dedication to another. The friendship is a theme that threads throughout. Well, the Bible has the same sort of thing. It's imagery and themes that recur to tell us again and again the story of what God is doing in history, in the world, in our lives. It's a story of the true king and his true people in a world where we're always looking to political powers to save us. It's the story of a shepherd and his sheep. It's the story of a father 
and his sons or children being brought into his home and family forever. And the first metaphor, the first image we get in the whole of Bible, and it also comes at the end, is that of a marriage. The Bible's story begins with a marriage, a marriage in the Garden of Eden between one man and one woman, Adam and Eve. And it ends in Revelation 19 that we just had read in another marriage, in the new creation, this time between Christ and his bride, the church. Let's look again at what it says in Revelation 19 to look a little closer at the story that God is telling us this morning. So John, who's writing this, is caught up into heaven and is given visions of the future, of eternity, of what God is doing in this world even now. And he hears this great multitude, angels, people, shouting out, Alleluia, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with linen, fine linen, bright and pure. So here we have this image, this description of a lamb. But if you read the rest of Revelation, it becomes very clear that the lamb is Christ. And Christ is now on his throne. Christ is on his throne, meaning God is now reigning, and all the hopes that we've been longing for have begun. The enemy, evil, sin, death, have all been defeated. The lamb is on his throne, Christ our God reigns. And then there's this image of a bride. The bride has made herself ready and it's been granted to her to clothe herself in fine linen, white and pure, kind of a wedding garment. And the description of this bride is that the bride is actually the faithful, the church, that have been in the book of Revelation the whole time. It's those who believe and trust and follow the lamb who follow Christ and who endure to the end, despite a world filled with injustices and evil, even their own struggles and suffering. They are the redeemed and forgiven who continue faithfully to cling to and hold to the hope that the Lamb will one day reign. And the imagery that we're getting here is actually that of a wedding, a wedding that unites the Lamb and his bride, which is believers, the church. Okay, so this is a little bit strange, maybe even a little confusing. I think what would be helpful is actually to walk through this metaphor, this imagery of the bride and the true husband and the way that God sees us throughout Scripture. And so that's what I want to do this morning is walk through a bunch of the Bible to see what God is doing in this imagery of his love for us and to be reminded ultimately of the depth of his love for us. So it begins, as I said earlier, back in Genesis. And here's the question is this. If I were to say, why did God create? What's the answer? Why did God create? Don't answer. So God does not create because he's bored. God does not create because, well, he likes to push people around. Here's the understanding of, of Christian understanding of creation is God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God, in eternal loving union. So God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are complete and in joyful, loving embrace eternally, coexisting forever and ever. And out of that loving union, there is a, there's a birthing, a sharing of that loving union that births creation and ultimately 
creation in his image. And so he makes us, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, make us in his image as diverse, male and female, and invites us into loving, lifelong unions, reflecting his Trinitarian eternal union. And when a husband and wife come together in lifelong, loving union, the possibility of sharing and birthing new life happens. Procreation. Do you see what's going on there? From the very beginning, God's design is that he wants to over, he is overflowing in love and wants to share and give out his love into those who can receive it. And so the story of what God is doing in the world begins with a wedding. The first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, who are brought together and the two become one flesh. And it ends, as we said, in Revelation 19, in a wedding, this time not a man and a woman, but Christ and his church. The story ends with his church as the bride. And that means every one of us is the bride of Christ. Men and women are the bride of Christ. God wants to marry you, is sort of the way of understanding it. Because he wants to share the life of the Trinity with us. Not just for us to sort of believe in him or believe some truths that we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, I believe. He wants us to experience the fullness of his love, the fullness of the love that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have experienced forever. He wants to invite us into that fully, even now, to experience the fullness of his love for us even now, and ultimately to experience it in a way that will be completely overwhelming in the future that every desire and longing for love and fulfillment can only shadow in this life. Christopher West sums up what God is doing in creation this way, God is an infinite communion of persons experiencing love bliss. So he's, he's completely happy, and he creates us for one reason, to share that eternal love and bliss with us. And the story of the Old Testament is about God entering into relationship with a people that he is inviting, wooing, courting to be his bride and saying, I want to marry you. Will you be my spouse? In Jeremiah 2, we get this description of God's relationship to Israel, his chosen people, when it says, thus says the Lord to Israel, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness and a land not sown. And then the book of Ezekiel has this one extended metaphor, chapter 16. If you go and read it, it's a little bit out there and mind-blowing. It starts with this description of a little baby girl who is born but abandoned by her family, kind of left out to be exposed. But the Lord God comes and finds the baby girl and protects her and brings her, and she is raised up. And then he marries her when she is of age. It says this, when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you, which is a, a, a physical description of, of an act that took place in an ancient Israelite wedding. And I covered your nakedness, your shame, gave you protection and a home. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. These are two descriptions of how God, Yahweh, the Lord God Almighty, courts Israel out of Egypt and for 40 years in the wilderness saying, will you be mine? Will you be mine? And at Mount Sinai, when the covenant and the law is given, God weds his people Israel. You are my bride. You are my wife. 
forever. I am committed to you. But the story of the Old Testament is the story of not a faithful bride, but an unfaithful bride. In fact, the way that sin is understood, not just in the Old Testament, and in the New Te- but also in the New Testament, is often with the word adultery, infidelity, or unfaithfulness. Whether it is Israel's injustice, not caring for the poor, not protecting the widow or the foreigner, or Israel's idolatry, idolatry, trusting in other gods, whatever it is, it's called adultery. And it's basically saying this, all sin, whether it was ancient Israel or in our lives, is actually unfaithfulness and infidelity to God. It's going after other lovers and not being dedicated to the Lord our God for everything that we need. All sin is relational, and the relationship has to do with us and God. Israel is unfaithful, and you see that in the rest of Exodus, or, uh, Ezekiel 16, as there's a description of how God weds Israel, but then Israel goes off and sleeps with everyone else. And God lets her go that way, go into exile, deal with the repercussions of her unfaithfulness. But God does not stay angry forever. In Ezekiel 16, 60, he says, yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Basically, the Lord is saying to Israel, I married you, you abandoned me, but I'm here, and I want to remarry you. The Old Testament is filled with these images of God's dedicated, faithful love as the true husband, the true spouse, and Israel, his people, the bride, his chosen, who is often unfaithful. One of the most extended metaphors is in the book of Hosea. Hosea was a prophet, and God called Hosea to do something horrible. I want you to go marry a prostitute. That's a horrible thing to have to do. So he goes and marries the prostitute. They have children, and then she abandons him. She's unfaithful to him. She runs away, and Hosea is called to go after her. And when he finds her, he actually has to pay to set her free from her enslavement and bring her back to be his wife again. Hosea's life was what's called an enacted prophecy or an enacted parable. There are a lot of examples of this in the ancient world, but also in the Jewish writings in the New Testament as well. Like Isaiah the prophet was actually called to do an enacted prophecy. It's the worst one I've ever heard of, where for three years he had to walk around naked and preach God's word. And it was supposed to be like, this is what's going to happen to Israel. They are going to be stripped and ashamed. I'm like, God, is there another way to do that? Can I just say you guys are going to be stripped and ashamed? But he wanted it to be, God wanted it to be very clear. It's an enacted prophecy. When Jesus overturns the money changers, that is an enacted judgment prophecy on the temple and its system and the faulty religious system of the first century Jewish world. And here, Hosea is called to live out a life enacting what God is going to do with Israel. First, choose an unfaithful spouse. Then when she abandons him, let her go, but then go and pay to redeem her and bring her back to be his wife. In the middle of the second chapter of Hosea, God moves from talking through, we get, get moved from the story of Hosea's life into what God is speaking directly to Israel when he says this. God's saying to Israel, 
and I will betroth you to me forever. You have been unfaithful, but I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. I loved you. I gave myself for you. I committed myself to you. You abandoned me. You continue to abandon me, but I will go after you and I will bring you back forever. One day, one day I will bring you back to me forever. You see, at this time, the prophets, when they were speaking, it was either during or just before Israel goes into exile. The Lord lets them be conquered by another land, another nation. They go into exile, and they are suffering. And for hundreds of years, they are suffering. Eventually, Israel comes back to the land of Israel. The the people of Israel come back to the land of Israel. And yet, they do not establish their kingdom. They feel like they're still abandoned by God, and they are longing for the day when God would come and reestablish his covenant with them. Show up. Be their God. Be present once again. And that's God's promise through the prophets, that he will come again one day to redeem them, to be their husband, to take them back as his spouse. We get it very clearly in Isaiah 54, when the prophet Isaiah is prophesying the day when God comes again. And it's a prophecy for Israel dealing with the guilt and shame of their own sinfulness and unfaithfulness. And God says to Israel this this beautiful set of lines in Isaiah 54, fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he has called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. The middle of that, verse 5, is such a beautiful phrase. Israel is going into exile, maybe reading this in their time of exile, as many of us experience that feeling distant from God, and God says to them, to us, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. And for hundreds of years, Israel waited, longed for the day when the maker would show up and redeem them, and bring them back to him. And then Jesus comes along, and he starts talking in parables, and two of the parables he uses are of a wedding feast and ten virgins. These are parables about the kingdom, about God's kingdom coming, about what's going to happen in the end when God's reign comes and is present. The first is the parable of the wedding feast, where a king throws a wedding feast for his son and invites guests, but a lot of the guests don't come, And then eventually he has to go out to invite all sorts of other guests, the ones that were not originally invited. And then somebody shows up and isn't wearing the right wedding clothes and gets kicked out. It's very strange. And another one is that of the ten virgins. They're supposed to have these lamps. The ten virgins are the bridal party that stay with the bride in the weeks leading up to the groom coming to take her to go and do the wedding. And they're supposed to wait and be ready for the arrival of the groom so they can go to the wedding. Do they have their lamps ready? Are they awake? Are they waiting for the day when the the groom arrives? Both of these point to the eternal kingdom when God comes to establish his reign, to restore Israel 
to him. But Jesus in both of these is identifying himself as the groom. In other words, all those prophecies of the Old Testament, the Lord God says, I am your husband. I called you at Sinai. I am your maker, the Holy One of Israel, and I am your husband. Jesus is saying, that's me. The Holy One of Israel, your maker, Yahweh, I'm here. I'm the true groom. He says it explicitly in Matthew 5.18. When asked why his disciples don't fast like the other kind of rabbis' disciples fast, and he said, can the wedding guests fast as long as the groom is with them? He's like, I'm the groom, the one you all should be waiting for, the one the whole earth has been waiting for. I am your redeemer and your true loving husband. And then all of this, gets brought to its most clear connecting of the dots. A couple of books later in Ephesians, when Paul begins talking about marriage in Ephesians 5, so kind of bringing this more to a close here in understanding the, the Old and New Testament, Paul in Ephesians 5 starts talking about husbands and wives. And so it sounds like he's just giving instructions. Wives, this is how you're supposed to relate to your husbands. Husbands, this is how you're supposed to relate to your wives. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. But then he starts going on and on. Now, Paul does this a lot of times in Ephesians. What happens with Paul is he gets really excited about something, and then he writes run-on sentences. And his run-on sentences are just like, He's just blown away by what he's imagining and seeing because God is giving him the words. And he's like, whoa, whoa, this is, this is really true. And so he starts talking about husbands and wives and he's like, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and Christ gave himself up for the church, sanctifying her, goes on for talking about the body in the same way husbands should love their wives for he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What Paul is doing here is connecting Genesis 2 and Revelation 19. In Genesis 2.24, in Genesis 2.24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And what Paul is saying is that verse in Genesis 2.24 is not primarily about human marriage. or about the marriage of Adam and Eve. It is primarily about God's plan in Jesus Christ to one day marry his bride, the church, us, all men and women, to unite himself to us. The aim of creation, the plan of redemptive history from the very beginning is to unite all things in himself to fill us with all the fullness of his love for us, till we are overwhelmed with the fullness of God in us and experiencing the fullness of total communion with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and one another. The plan for the fullness of time was not just men and women getting married, but for us to be God's beloved and chosen forever. And that tells us two things, two things to end our time. First, marriage is not ultimate. 
Marriage is actually sacramental. Sacramental meaning a sign that points to God's plan. God's plan from creation to the consummation in the new creation. And therefore, every marriage is meant to be a sign. Every marriage is meant to point back to the union of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and how they birth creation. We are made in the image of God, male and female, brought together in a loving, lifelong union and commitment that has the possibility of birthing new creation, a baby. And every marriage is meant not just to do that, but to point ahead, to point ahead to the union of Christ and his bride, us. Every marriage is a shadow of the reality of the eternal wedding that we are called to. Now, the modern world that we live in says self-expression and individual happiness are the ultimate. And the ultimate of the ultimate way of self-expression and individual happiness is sex and romance. Have that in whatever way you want, and then you will be happy. That's what you're made for. Christianity says marriage, romance, sex are not ultimate. And you will only find the fulfillment you're looking for in Christ. And that's why both marriage and singleness are valued in Christianity. Every marriage, every married person, every single person is called to live out in their bodies and in their relationships the enacted parable about what God is doing in this world. Married persons are called to give themselves sacrificially and uniquely in loving union to their spouse, pointing to the marriage of Christ to us that we are made for. And every single person is called to offer their body and their relationships to the Lord, awaiting their true spouse, the only one who can ultimately satisfy us. And in that sense, the church, we need each other. We need married people and single people to live out their vocation and point us to the true wedding, the true marriage, the true spouse. So Christianity says this, marriage and sex are not essential to be the true you. Only God is. God is essential for true, lasting joy, peace, and love. And secondly, and lastly, marriage is not ultimately second. God is passionately in love with you. I loved reading through these passages over the past week or so and rereading them again last night and this morning. God is passionately in love with each one of us. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Four Loves years ago. And the four loves are these Greek terms that um, the New Testament uses, and there are four ways of expressing love. They include these terms, storge, philia, eros, and agape. So storge is like love for your puppy, for your dog. Philia is brotherly love or friendship love. Eros is often considered romantic or sexual love, and agape is the one that we often in Christianity say is true love. It's, it's God's uh, faithful, gracious love to those who don't deserve it. And I think what we've done, and, and many scholars are seeing this now, is we have devalued eros as a way that God wants us to see his love for us. And that's partly because we have twisted what eros means. We hear the word eros or erotic, and what do we think? Sex and lust. But actually, the root of it means desires, your loves and wants. 
And if we're really honest about ourselves, we think that we are thinking beings, but we're really desiring beings. God doesn't just want your mind, he wants your heart, your hungers, your desires, your loves, your eros. God made us desiring beings. He made us erotic beings because eros is one of the languages that God speaks of love for us. Christopher West says it this way, eros is truly a cry of our hearts for the infinite. You think you want a woman. You really want the infinite, and she is not that. He is not that. No person can be what your erotic desires long for. Eros was given to us by God to lead us to the eternal marriage. And so let me say this to you. If Christmas season is hard for you because of losses or unmet longings or loneliness, don't just try to look back to Christmas's past with nostalgia. Don't look around and compare yourself to others. You're going to be disappointed. And don't just look inward. Look to your true love, your maker who's passionately in love with you. I'm going to do it. First century marriage. I should end right there, but I'm not. Sorry, hold. First century marriages had a three parts to them. Okay, this is traced through the Old and New Testament, but Daryl Johnson, um, who, who has a commentary on Revelation, he says, first century marriages come in three parts. The first part is the betrothal. A groom comes to the bride with his, his groomsmen, his best friends. He comes to the bride bringing costly gifts to pay and they have a ceremony. He goes to the father's house, the father of the bride-to-be. He goes to her. He brings these gifts. He comes with his friends. He says, I want to betroth you. And then they have a ceremony. And the ceremony involves sharing a cup of wine with this phrase as the blessing is being said over them. This is a new covenant. And then they are not married there, but they're legally bound together. And for a year, they live apart. The, the, bride, the groom goes back to his father's house to do what? To prepare a place in his father's house for his bride to come and live with him. And she prepares for a year to be the bride, waiting for the groom to come back for her. And when the year is up, they know it's about time, but nobody knows the exact time when the groom will come. And actually, at that point, the bridesmaids join the bride at her house, virgins, with their lamps, because in the tradition of the first century Jewish wedding, the groom is going to come at a day and time when it's not expected. Usually at night, with his groomsmen, they kind of go out like, okay, we're ready to do this. It's almost like trick-or-treat or something. And at midnight, they come, and the groomsmen shout, here is the groom, come out. And the bridesmaids and bride are supposed to come out with the lamps lit, clothes are given, fine linens, to wrap over his bride-to-be. And they go back to the father's house where the wedding feast has been prepared. And all the guests are invited and given these robes. And a week-long festival begins. And the two become one flesh. On the night before he was crucified, Jesus took a cup. He said, this is a new covenant in my blood. 
at great cost to himself, his own life. He clothes us in righteousness and fine linens to wash us pure. And he says, I am going to my father's house to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be with me. And he's coming again at an hour in time we do not know. Be ready. Be alert. God created us to share in his divinity. He gives himself to us on the cross and intends one day as the groom to fill us, his bride, with the fullness of his life and love. On the cross, Jesus is saying, will you marry me? Let's pray. God, in a world of injustice and brokenness and in lives that often don't match our longings and desires, you are the God who made us, who has called us to be your spouse. You love us deeply. May we experience the fullness of your love for us even now as we await your coming again in glory. Amen. Stop.